This is Bob Ford of History, Mystery, and Lore, where we travel throughout the Midwest, going to museums and historic sites, talking to experts and old friends who've got good stories to tell. Today, I'm staying home in St. Joseph, Missouri, headed to the Remington Center to finish our conversation with local historian Sarah Elder. In the first segment, we discuss the beginnings of St. Joseph, Joseph Rubidoux, and the critically important part St. Joseph played in the migration and the development of the West, with many a trail and hundreds of thousands of settlers starting off from St. Joseph for all points west. We also discuss the Civil War and the negative effects it had on St. Joseph because of its split allegiance. In this segment, we will go back a bit, but mostly talk about the golden era of St. Joseph and discuss the fortunes that were made outfitting and wholesaling to settlers heading west. Having more millionaires per capita than any other city in the United States, St. Joseph showed off its lavish lifestyle and developed a city that rivaled all others in luxury and innovation. St. Joseph's catchphrase was, a city worthwhile, and it certainly was. Let us now go back to the Remington Center and continue our conversation. This is Bob Ford of History, Mystery, and Lore. As promised, I'm here at the Remington Center in St. Joseph, Missouri for round two with my friend... Sarah Elder. Well, thank you again for doing this, but we didn't finish. (laughs) Well, we got through most of the Civil War period and its negative effect on St. Joseph, but after those dark days, St. Joseph experienced unheralded social economic and cultural strides that put this city as really one of the places to be in the United States. There were phenomenal times in St. Joseph with innovation and accomplishments and a lifestyle envied by most. But before we go there, I have to pull you back. We didn't get that my guy came to town. We didn't talk about him at all. Let's talk about Abraham Lincoln and his visit to St. Joseph. (laughs) What can you tell me about that? Which time? Uh, (laughs) He actually came, Abraham Lincoln came to St. Joseph a couple of times before the war. Um, He, let me back up a little bit. Back in the day, presidential campaigning was not like it is today. Uh, Sure, the mudslinging was there, absolutely. Um, But it wasn't a case of where the candidate went and stumped for himself. Uh, For whatever reason, it was considered to be unseemly that the candidate went out and said, hey, I'm the best person for you. He had to rely on his circle of promoters to go, hey, the vote for Abraham Lincoln because this is the great guy. You don't want to vote for William Seward because he does this and X, Y, and Z. So he was kind of more or less promoting the newly formed Republican Party in 1859. And he came to St. Joseph a couple of times in those late 1850s. The most notable one was in 1859. He arrived here, I believe, by steamboat and spent some time on the riverfront. And according to reports, legend, myth, however you want to put it down, he stopped at, I believe, the Planters House Hotel or the Edgar House, my apologies, um, and got a shave and a haircut. 
-hmm. before he crossed the, the river by a steam ferry. And from there, he was met by some supporters who took him by buggy to Troy, Kansas. In Elwood. And, yeah, he was met in Elwood, and he was taken to Troy, Kansas, where he gave a speech. And I believe he traveled on from there up to the Omaha Council Bluffs area. And it's where he met, or at some point during that journey, he met Grenville Dodge, mm -hmm. which plays into the future Transcontinental Railroad. Mm -hmm. Um, because Grenville Dodge was, he was, of course, he was a surveyor. He became a surveyor and one of the go-to guys as far as an engineer for Lincoln during the Civil War. And Grenville Dodge was from the Omaha Council Bluffs area, and he believed that's where the Transcontinental Railroad should come from. So that initial meeting certainly had some play with Lincoln in the late 1850s. Grenville Dodge felt that the uh, Transcontinental Railroad should follow the Platte River. Right. And, uh, that does make probably sense, but uh, that took it away from here. It did, and there were, St. Joseph was, as we talked last time, was a commercial hub. It was a transportation hub. It was a um, communication hub at before the start of the Civil War. But um, while there were no actual battles within the St. Joseph uh, city limits or environs, there were skirmishes between citizens and soldiers and citizens and citizens and soldiers and soldiers. And so while the Missouri was important, St. Joseph was important, uh, the powers that be in, in Washington were kind of keeping an eye on this and as because they were talking about the Transcontinental Railroad even as war raged. So this had been something that had been talked about, I think, since the 1850s. Basically, the first railroad appeared. How can we cross the United States with it, I think, is kind of when that whole idea came about. But um, it just it took some time, and there were some bad feelings about what happened to Union sympathizers in St. Joseph. And so, yeah, a lot of that played into, yeah, I think we're going to move the eastern terminus of the Transcontinental Railroad to up north and the state of Missouri itself and the state of Missouri itself and also let's face it Missouri while not completely decimated by battles uh, more uh, Missouri was the had the third highest number of battles mm -hmm. in during the Civil War uh, second I believe to uh, third to uh, Virginia, Virginia and Tennessee or yeah I think Tennessee was second it, yeah Tennessee or Kentucky was second Georgia <laughs> Georgia and Georgia got hit hard, very much so. Um, but yeah, so it just so it, it had Missouri had to recover, and let's face it, there really was no fighting in Iowa, Nebraska. A lot of Union supporters they uh, provided troops yep. to the Union Army, um, but they they didn't have to worry about sabotage. And this bushwhackers had already proven sabotage with the Platte River Bridge disaster and with very other smaller bridges as well. So uh, Lincoln came here, and then uh, on his next trip, he then went back to Troy. I think he went back to Troy, yeah. And made the famous speech. Right. Now, nobody knows what he says, but the timing was there. Some reporter timed the speech, and it was exactly the length of the Cooper Union Address. So other people think that that is the first place he gave the the Cooper Union Cooper address Union yeah maybe address. a testing ground right. for the Cooper Union before he went back um, to say that and and if and anybody's expecting me to quote the Cooper Union it's no. not going to happen no but, <laughs> no but a month later a he, month later he so. me and then becomes a national figure yes and that's and he he had served in Congress prior to business he was like a one term and then went back to Springfield Illinois and as his attorney and things mm -hmm. like that so he had some national attention, but it was that Cooper Union address yep. that brought him to the forefront 
of the Republican Party and then it would eventually become his the law partner nominee. said that the, that that address is the one that he worked the hardest and longest on. Mm -hmm. So you have to think that he would he's thinking he's in the middle of Kansas. Who's going to listen to this? Well, so exactly. Let me, let me throw it out there and see what the reaction is. And, and who who and who is Abraham Lincoln? Yeah, he was known, but not known. You know, his people knew him in the area. He had been an attorney for the railroads. And, and so his name was known, but he wasn't like this huge national figure that he would become after Cooper Union and after election to the presidency. Uh, the other thing about Lincoln and what Lincoln has said is he liked to whatever town he went into, he liked to walk the town. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder the different places he may have gone that nobody knows. Exactly, because um, photography is still in relative infancy. It's only been around 10, 15, maybe 20 years as a commercial thing and of people getting their pictures taken and there weren't <laughs> people roaming around with cameras to take pictures like, oh, hey, that's somebody that I should know. So um, there are reports that he spent time at the riverfront. Um, and so, you know, did he walk downtown waiting for the ferry? Mm -hmm. Did he see businesses? Did he run into the various movers and shakers? And or did he just, you know, he was kind of he could be kind of a reserved person think go, about things did he go in and have a beer yeah did yeah did he go in and have a drink did he did he or did he just go get a shave and a haircut did he go and have did he make it as far from from the riverfront to Patey house did he you know mm -hmm. what what did he do so that's well, all open for speculation well, he had a colleague that had a place on Messini that he went to that he was in oh, congress okay. with and that is one one night they don't know where he stayed. I, right. I contend he stayed in that. Uh, Maybe. Uh, oh night. yeah, I mean if you if you obviously if you go someplace and you don't have a place to stay and you got a friend say hey gotta mm -hmm. sleep on your couch right. that you know that kind of thing. So, that yeah. house still stands. That's cool. Well anyway, thank you for letting me go back like that. <laughs> to but, your dude, yeah, yeah that's your guy. Yeah, now, absolutely. Let's let's move on and mm -hmm. how Saint Joseph came out of those dark days and progressed to become really an incredible city. It did. Um, the The Battle of Westport in 1864 was the last ditch effort by the Confederacy, the Confederate Army, to get Missouri fully into the Confederate fold. And it was, you know, this was the last ditch effort. And they made it as far as Westport, Missouri. So not too terribly far from St. Joseph. But and there's different theories as to why it didn't happen. Um, Sterling Price did, you know, they did kind of forage and scrounge, and he had a wagon train full of the spoils of war um, and then as it kind of followed him as he came up Missouri and there were different battles and, he, and but he did get stopped at Westport so by and large at least in my way of thinking the major battles were finished in 1864 mm -hmm. so a few skirmishes a few things like that but the war was essentially over by that time the schools in St. Joseph reopened um, in 1864 and people started coming back and surveying what kind of damage there had been. Um, there was a report, I believe, from a New York newspaper reporter who indicated that the city was pretty much a ghost town by 1864, 1865. But uh, one of the Union commanders did mention in the 1864 election, um, I'll paraphrase here, that people in the 1864 election, they were concerned about some tension at the polls. 
but decide, but people voted, they voted early, they voted often, and on both sides of the Missouri River. <laughs> That's a quote from one of the unit commanders. <laughs> but so, in other words, and, and Preston Filbert says this in, in the book, The Half Not Told, in other words, things were returning to normal mm -hmm. uh, by that time. So, but in 1865, you start to see that that's when the businesses start to recover. And the, it becomes more, the hardware and saddlery uh, firms, many of them were still open, but didn't have a lot of business. So here you have William Wyeth with his hardware and saddlery wholesaler. He starts to come back. The newspapers start to talk about him. They, the R.L. McDonald and Company factory, which that building is still standing on uh, 4th and Farron, I think. And um, Ketchum had Queensware in China, so all these businesses are starting to come back, and they keep just keeps getting better and better. And 1860 census we talked about had about 9,000 people. Mm -hmm. By 1870, it's almost 20,000. Mm -hmm. So it's more than doubled in just that 10-year period. And it doubles again, and then again, and then again, and again, and then you get to about 1900, and then but that's a whole other story with the oh, census right. in 1900. Really, hundred thousand well, people in 1900. Yeah, no. 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 Don't tell <laughs> the government that. <laughs> well, no, it's greatly recognized. You'll see any pretty much. It's one of those that has an asterisk next to it. Um, it's it's What's that's that the official. What's the official number? Um, Bob Slater has the better story on this, so I've, I'll paraphrase this, but apparently when the surveyor or the, the census taker came to town, or they came, uh, there's one story that they kind of kept him moving around and a little bit imbibing. <laughs> it's like, oh, look at all these people. And so some people probably got counted twice, and some people kind of maybe weren't alive and stuff. So anyway, so there is, there is if you look at any... Obviously not the things that were printed in 1900, but post then. If you look at different things that record the census, there is an asterisk next to it that this is, this is most likely to be highly inaccurate. So, <clears throat> but yeah, but no, at the time, that's, but that's the official census because that's when it was taken. All right. Well, so anyway, that's 1900. That's further on down the road. But yeah. Kind of business-wise, mm -hmm. uh, there was a segue to where we, we, went from being outfitters to everybody going to West to becoming mm -hmm. wholesalers. Yes. And that was very successful. And the people who were outfitting did successfully become wholesalers. Yes. Talk about that transition. Well, I, I'm not sure I'm not being having much of a business background, but I can't imagine it would be too terribly different because, okay, you're outfitting wagon trains um, with supplies, with um, flour. Uh, bacon it, at that time if they had it because they would get bacon when they first started and then it would be gone within just a few weeks on the trail but um, oats uh, leather goods mm -hmm. so you know saddles you need reins to outfit so a set so we'll take the Wyeth saddle company just as an example so they're outfitting with leather goods and they can provide tack and things like that for wagon trains well it's not that much difference for, for, for providing tack for people for horses for buggies not just for local people but the frontiers getting settled mm -hmm. as it keeps going in the 1870s 80s 90s and eventually the frontiers declared closed but it's still horse and buggy days so the leather the saddlery they did sell firearms um, as a hardware wholesaler that you look at their catalog uh, their silverware that they would wholesale they would wholesale stoves all these things to help settle the West. Well, then they started sending salesmen out Exactly. There. So you start small, and it's like, in these towns, you know, the frontier's closing. Towns are being developed. Towns are being set up. 
and people are moving to those towns. What do they need? They want the comforts of the home that they've left behind. Mm -hmm. So you, they, you get a mercantile or a dry goods or a general store to show up. And then so these salesmen would have their salesman samples and they would go out to the different towns. And obviously, you know, salesmen had different territories and they would go and they would have, there's your samples. And um, the, the owner or the manager whoever was in charge of purchasing would go through the catalog or look at the salesman samples and get however much they ordered and the order forms would be written down and the salesman would either telegraph them back or come back to St. Joseph, turn in the orders, and then they would be shipped. Well, it created kind of another tide of wealth Yes. here in town. It did. And that wealth was represented by architecture. Oh my, and yes. Homes yes. And downtown buildings. By... And yeah, by the 1880s, uh, which uh, the golden age in St. Joseph has been interpreted in different decades, but generally speaking, we'll just say about 1875 to about 1925, and that's a give or take either way. 50 years. Yeah, so is the golden age of St. Joseph when there were more millionaires per capita than any other city of its size. So there was a lot of money. I'll, I'll give you, for instance, Milton Tootle Sr., when he passed away in 1886, his, and this is from the newspapers, his estate was valued at $4 million in 1886 money. Mm -hmm. I haven't done the math to know what that would be no. now. But he was involved in real estate. He was involved in banking. He was in, at one point you know, in dry goods. He was partners with various and sundry other well-known names in St. Joseph. So what people have this money, you, you want to reflect that. And so you build these beautiful, gorgeous architectural masterpieces, not only in your private home, your business, and your grave. Well, there you go. <laughs> so. Well, I, I'm thinking there was a good bit of competition in showing it off. You would think so. So, I yeah, mean, because sure. some of these houses, I mean, were just mm -hmm. opulent. Uh, the The... the most the, unique and they one, still stand. and many of them still stand. The most unique one, of course, as we know it now, would be the Wyeth Tootle Mansion, mm -hmm. built by William Wyeth, architect of E.J. Eckel, who Edmund Eckel um, arrived in St. Joseph in like 1869. Uh, story is it is that he was on the train and he was headed points other places. He wasn't staying here in St. Joe, but the bridge was washed out, so he had to stick around. So as he's wandering through St. Joseph, waiting for the bridge to be repaired, he just decides, you know what? This place has potential. Mm -hmm. And he stuck around. And he went through many partners. The uh, story is he was hard on partners <laughs> in partnerships. But he or his firm are responsible for something like 75% of the public and private buildings in St. Joseph. Wow. So many of these homes and business. The St. Joseph City Hall is an Eccle production. But uh, William Wyeth according to the story, fell in love with the castles on the Rhine River that he and his family took um, in the early 1870s. And so that's what he had designed, was this house that looks like a castle. It's got the turret, it's got the tower, it's got the crenellations, all this kind of stuff. Um, didn't live there very long. He built another house, just kind of catty corner uh, from him um, in the 1880s. But that house was purchased by Mrs. Catherine Tootle, who was the recent widow of Milton Tootle Sr. And she'd taken over her husband's business interests um, because her son was not of age. He was like, I want to say 14, 15 or something like that when his dad died. So, but it was the Tootle home from 1887 until 1947 when Milton Tootle Jr. passed away. 
So yeah, so if now it's it was became the home of the St. Joseph Museum, and so a lot of the architectural things were covered up, but were still there. And then in the 1990s, it was like, you know, let's, we've got these descriptions from books like Old St. Joe from the newspapers. Let's, what can we find? And so latex paint was stripped from the ceilings, and there's the original hand-painted ceilings mm. that are still there. Pictures show the chandeliers. Let's see what we can get some reproductions to show that. Paint was scraped down to plaster, so we know the initial, the very first color that was painted on there. So a lot of that was done. Um, and then the one room, the Moorish room, is essentially unchanged. Uh, the lighting fixtures changed, the furniture, of course, is gone, but the mantelpiece is still there and all that kind of good stuff. So you have that, and then you have, I'm sorry, the most glorious neighborhood or street in the world is Hall Street mm -hmm. with all of those mansions, and they all of them have a wonderful story. Um, most of them are in really pretty good shape. Um, they've been in great shape, they've kind of fallen into disrepair, and then somebody's Right. purchased them and brought them back up and many of these homes are featured on home stores historic home stores so that's why i think this and i think that's why people like home stores for those old homes yes is to go in and see how they, they lived how what they, they did because um 809 hall is now the shakespeare chateau bed and breakfast 802 hall was another tootle home uh i think it was 802 he but um they kind of, it became a bed and breakfast and then kind of fell into, I'm not sure why it wasn't, mm. fell into bad shape. I believe somebody's purchased it and is on working on bringing it back. Um, so yeah, some of those homes, they're just amazing. And then that's kind of a concentrated area there on Hall Street and 8th, 7th, all that kind of stuff. But then there are these other pockets of these Yes, you Grand go around homes, the corner you around, and yeah. you, you just go, oh my goodness, Holy look cow. at that house. Yes. And a lot of these people of wealth had the downtown, and they built little kind of summer places mm -hmm. just five miles outside of town. <laughs> exactly. And where it would be just as opulent. Exactly. There's um, Frederick Avenue as an avenue stops right around 26th, 27th Street for for just delineation sake we'll say noise boulevard or 28th street mm -hmm. and then it becomes frederick boulevard and it's just the difference between the avenue is more narrow or a boulevard is this kind of a grandiose mm -hmm. thing that's where the city limits stopped for many years so a lot of homes like you said the mm -hmm. summer homes mm -hmm. <laughs> um houston wyeth built wythewood which is now the wyeth estate there's offices out there the actual house is in the back mm -hmm. Um, I believe it is a, at one time it was available. You could use it as a rental space for a venue, but yeah. So, but imagine without the offices in front, here's this beautiful home. And then this, there was a gatehouse and all these kind of things. And then Cloverly farm was a Tootle summer residence It's where LeBlanc high school is mm -hmm. now. So yeah, Cloverly farm. Oh, there's, there's notations in the newspapers and of the, of the parties that were held here. I've seen some photographs of a Halloween party and everybody's in costume. It's, it's, it's fabulous. Well, yeah. Some of the opulent, but oh, my before God. it became known as Frederick Boulevard, it was asylum road. Oh uh, yes. Because the state <laughs> lunatic asylum number two was built out there in 1874. Don't come at me. That was the name of it. And then it became the St. Joseph State Hospital number two. And over time, eventually now it's Northwest Missouri Psychiatric Rehabilitation Center. But yeah, but that was because that was out there. It was just Asylum Road. And it wasn't a local name. 
It's in the city directories. It's listed in the, the um, newspapers. It talks about so-and-so on Asylum Road, you know, something, yeah. Well, take, take Asylum Road yeah, take, and then hang a left. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but, so, yeah, so, yeah, but those were those, were those country homes. Now, early, early after the Civil War, Grant and Sherman came here and spoke and got shouted down. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that maybe affected St. Joseph also because yes. Grant was about ready to run for president. So, yeah, so he ran for president in 72 the first time, I think is what he read. So, yeah, he's probably shown up here about 1870, 71. And, yeah, I'm sure, let's face it, the Civil War's just been over five, six years. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure there's still some pretty strong feelings on both sides. Mm-hmm. And um, it just, yeah, that does that wouldn't surprise me. So yeah, that would affect how the federal government would react to certain projects uh, for St. Joseph, which might, you know, a lot of the stuff we talk about can be just as pure speculation because based on, it's just kind of, they're pretty good educated guesses, but they're still guesses. Because like you said, with, with Lincoln's speech, nobody wrote it down. We don't know what it was, but we know he made a speech and we know he made this really powerful speech just a month later. So here's Grant, and he's maybe showing up in 69, 70. No, he was elected the first time in 1868. I'm sorry. Um, so 18, he was elected in 68 and 72. So right around 1867, 68, has he come out, out here just to make some speeches, to see what's happening? And there's talk about building a bridge across the Missouri River. So here's St. Joseph. They shout down Grant Sherman. But in 1868-69, a young man by the last name of Shoto is looking to build a bridge. And Leavenworth has the odds-on favorite to get the first bridge across the Missouri River because the Missouri River was considered to be unbridgeable because of its, uh, of its ever-changing nature mm-hmm. at that time. It was just too dangerous. But uh, Shoto said, nope, we can do this. And so he basically, a contingent for Kansas City gets put together, and in the 11th hour, edges Leavenworth out and gets the first, the Hannibal Bridge across the Missouri River at Kansas City in 1869. Well, that's unusual because Sherman's background was Leavenworth. Right. Sherman was a lawyer, I mean, before he was a general, mm-hmm. and before he made Georgia howl, mm-hmm. he... Uh, you would have thought he, he well. He would Leavenworth, have according to, to what I've read, yeah, according to what I've read, Leavenworth was on on target to get the bridge. Um, First city of Kansas. He exactly was on target, but this contingent of um, because Kansas City was up and coming at the same time. Kansas City is about eight years younger than St. Joseph, and and quite frankly, did not reach the level that St. Joseph did until after the Civil War. But um, the railroad had made its way to to um, Kansas City. There was a spur off the Hannibal and St. Joseph Railroad that went to Kansas City. and But they managed to, the businessmen, um, representatives from the Hannibal, they had people come from the railroad to come and look, and here's what we're looking at. And so they build that first Hannibal Bridge in 1869. Two years later, in 1871, is when Leavenworth gets their bridge. St. Joseph gets our first bridge in 1873. Well, I contend, I've said this before, that the the political pressure from the people plying the river back and forth, just think of the influence, the local Mm -hmm. influence they had on politics. That's the last thing they wanted was a bridge. That puts them out of business. Well, well, you, you look at the competition, just take politics out of it. At this point, you have the steamboats. 
railroad are the direct enemy of the steamboats because the steamboats had all the commercial trade. So yeah, there's going to be back and forth between the steamboat magnates and going with the railroad magnates, and but eventually uh, the railroad magnates won. And uh, you can speculate whether it was good, bad, ugly, indifferent all day long, but eventually the railroad won. It's just a faster mode of transportation. And a little bit safer, not to say that engines didn't, you know, steamboats could explode mainly because of faulty engineering or because the captain was looking to build more speed and ordered the boilers be basically be left open. Mm -hmm. um, but there were enough accidents. People heard about them. These are horrific accidents that happen because a steamboat is blown up. And I think um, railroads proved to be faster uh, than the steamboats get, get, get there quicker. And that's what business is about. That's get their product out there faster, quicker, sooner, and be the first one to get out there. So, and yeah, when you have businessmen, wealthy businessmen, who want something, and then they bring pressure on their congressmen, and then their congressmen move on to senators, and the senators move on to the presidency. So yes, it becomes a domino effect. To get for the magnates, be they national or local, to get what they want. Now, Grant and Sherman were uh, were yelled at at the, the Patey House. <laughs> what is it about the Patey John House? People Patey. speak. <laughs> John Patey, this was the most opulent hotel oh, yes. west of the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that story. How did, how did he well, end up let me... rebuying the Patey House? <clears throat> John Patey fell into debt. Uh, I don't know if it was a direct result of the construction of the Patey House, because as you said, it was in an opulent hotel. There were some, he was pretty much guaranteed that if he built the hotel there, the railroad would come close. It didn't. The railroad was blocks away, but he still, it was the last quote unquote bastion of civilization before heading off into the unknown. So he announces in 1865 that he's got debts to pay. So he's going to raffle off the Patey House Hotel and it's furnishings and bed sheets in China. He is going to, um, just get rid of it all. So lottery tickets were $2 a piece and he was going to sell 70,000 of them and they went nationwide. And the drawing was actually going to be done on April 26, 1865. And they were supposed to draw 528 tickets and the five, and there would be smaller lots given away as on these raffle prizes, but ticket number drawing number 528, that was the big one. That was for the hotel. So they draw the early ones, that, according to Sheridan Logan, they received prizes of pillows, mattresses, armchairs, marble top washstands, and walnut wardrobes. So those were the early prizes were. So a little boy who was blindfolded drew the numbers out of the barrel, and Mr. William Reidenbaugh announced them. But the day ended before the drawing was complete. So the drawing had to continue into April 27th, but they still sold tickets. <laughs> <laughs> So it's like there was no cutoff date for this. They still sold tickets at that point. So when the 528th number was drawn, it was found to be from a block of tickets that had been returned unsold from Quincy, Illinois. And those tickets were purchased by John Patey. Of course they were. And it was his ticket that was drawn, so he won back his hotel. Now, proceeds of the sale of those tickets, <clears throat> excuse me, had been deposited 
at the St. Joseph branch of the Bank of the State of Missouri, which that building is still standing as well, and was held in trust for John Patey. And the bank proceeded to pay off Mr. De Patey's debts of approximately $20,000. Now, this is what I love. There's always a quote from a newspaper or from a, a, or somebody's put it into a book or whatever. This is, the lottery had been fairly conducted and no complaints were made. That is unbelievable. <clears throat> and apparently there were no complaints. And for those of listeners of a certain age, there was a television show called Ripley's Believe It or Not. <laughs> Jack Palance was the host. Well, he came to St. Joseph. And for those of you who remember Jack Palance, he had that voice that was just so amazingly recognizable. And that's one of the stories he talks about. Believe it or not, this is what happened. And he mentions, he says, but this is St. Joe. No complaints were made. <laughs> or, or paraphrasing for something like that. So yeah, everybody accepted it for what it was. So here's this man. Yes, he had debts, but some there's a part of me that wonders, was it really, he just really wanted to get rid of the place because he was tired of dealing with it. But then now he gets it back. <laughs> well, he held on to it for a few years. He had it a few it... more years, and then just shortly after the war, it, it got hold ends. And it's it the Patey House has changed hands. It was a shirt factory at one time. It was a women's college at one time. Um, it was another hotel. It was the Old World Hotel when Jesse James was shot and killed, and that's where and that's where his mother and and wife and children stayed um, during the inquest and all that kind of stuff at the Old World Hotel. And then it kind of sat empty for a while. And uh, then along comes Gary Chilcote and the Pony Express Historical Association, and they put a lot of sweat equity and financial into that, into a really wonderful museum now called the Patey House Museum. If you want to see the history of St. Joseph, yes. that is where you go. Yeah. Uh, Gary's done a fantastic job. I just talked to him, and he's done the third floor. Yes. And uh, they've recreated rooms. They have. And you kind of inexpensive rooms and then opulent mm -hmm. rooms. They, it's a, I've been to see them. It's amazing it what they what, did. And they used furniture done. that they had in storage. And the last I knew, I think they were working on a room dedicated to Thomas Edison. Yes. Who had not been, he was not in St. Joseph, but he had ties to some of the movers. And so I think Josiah Moss, I think, was the connection to Edison. So he has a lot of the old Edison equipment, light bulbs, everything that Edison was involved with. So I haven't been there. They were working on the room at the time I was there. So I don't know if it's been completed it has it, oh well i need to go check it out yeah, then yeah, because it is, it is really is it three really stories well f technically four stories but three stories of exhibits there isn't a wonderful new elevator which is fantastic it's and it, it does it doesn't matter your age it's great for kids it's great for adults it's just yeah there's just, a full yeah, great size time. steam engine yes right in the middle of it right in the middle of it and that was i think the last steam engine to go across what was then known as the hannibal and saint joseph railroad before it changed hands to another railroad uh, I think it's engine 69 I think is what it is and it's just yeah and there's a great story about that particular just the train itself and that was where the Pony Express headquarters yeah, was. The, the offices so. were there uh, mail would be brought there it was this hotel I mean it was the provost marshal during the Civil War trials were there that whole oh that is just truly truly a place if the walls could talk and mm. seriously if that could you, and you just put recorders in every room and you just let the walls talk to you Anybody because it's amazing. Anybody for 50 years that came to St. Joseph to make a speech spoke from there. Stood on the balcony, the porch or the flat balcony over the porch too, because it's a great vantage point. You could see the people get shouted down by the people. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, all right. Let's yeah, let's, let's move so that, on. So that's so, so that's yeah. That's John Patey who yeah. Yeah, great story. Oh, yeah. All these opulent people needed mm -hmm. places to play. 
Yes. Let's talk about Lake Contrary. Oh, Lake Contrary. Now, I'm going to be honest. I'm not sure when Lake Contrary became the playground of the city of St. Joseph. Because I, 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 I don't know. Like but the 1880s. It probably, but it was a case of picnics and uh, musical entertainment. Uh, Arthur Pryor Band eventually was there. But any, any of the named, uh, John Philip Sousa, I believe, played down there. So any of those kinds, because that was the entertainment of the 19th century were music house, not just going to a gazebo in a park or going someplace like Lake Ontario where there'd be a huge event. It was also in private homes and that's, you would listen to people play music or and maybe dance. And then over time, structures started to be built. So you have things like the Lotus Club mm-hmm. and, or things like the ballroom. And then that kind of, and then sailing, sailing on Lake Contrary was, I think there were races down there. So that became a thing. And, and there were tragedies, accidents that happened down there. Uh, the Lotus Club burned. Uh, somebody was doing some repair work, I believe is the story. They knocked over a brazier that had hot coals in it and it caught the building on fire. Uh, the place was prone, prone to flooding. Lake Contrary did flood out several times over the years. And then eventually it became an amusement park. So shoot the chutes and roller coasters and, and uh, one of the most beautiful carousels uh, made by the Denzel uh, brothers. And all, it was all fabulous. And well into the middle of the 20th century was it a playground for not just essentially the wealthy, um, but for St. Joseph citizens as, as well. You could, you could go down there and kind of hobnob with the, the movers and shakers. And there was a, sometimes a special trolley, the Lake Contrary special that would take everybody in there for special events. So, yeah. yeah Picnics. St. Joseph in the trolley, they, they, they outpaced other huge cities. Oh, yeah. There was um, the first electric streetcars ran on steel rails. And, of course, they had the big pole that would go to electric power lines um but that was in 1888 that that was the when the electric streetcars were introduced to st joseph and they were among the we were among the first cities to successfully operate an electric streetcar system and in just a year by 1889 st joseph had 34 and a half miles of electric street rail railway when it is said that new york only had 18 and a half and st louis only had five and a half and these are two New York and St. Louis are population centers that were bigger than St. Joseph in 1889. It just shows you the aggression mm-hmm. uh, that we had for uh, uh, for the future. Yeah, for innovation. I mean, uh, well, I mean Telegraph, 1853, Railroad, 1859. Um, and then just continuing on, like you said, 1880s, uh, electricity, as, as in streetlights, comes in the 1880s. Uh, early 1880s, get a waterworks. So we get plumbing. Now, not to say that people didn't still have wells and all this kind of thing. But, yeah, you get indoor plumbing. Um, They start to lay all that by the late 1870s, early 1880s. So there was this period of progressive and innovation. And now the photographs from that time of, like, 1890, there's nothing but power lines. There are you just, they're just, I mean, people, now, of course, most power lines, everything's done underground. They're buried. And but even me growing up, I remember telephone lines and power lines, but not to the extent I've that they had in I've the 1890s. So yeah, I've there's a those. ton of those is going on there. So yeah, well, it was a well-rounded city. I mean, then, mm-hmm. then here comes the stockyards. Yes. And so you had not only the stockyard business, but these dry good business, mm-hmm. and then we were also the agricultural center. Exactly, Saint Joseph. So it was just yeah, well. It just was well-rounded. Had a lot of things. Um, Meatpacking in, in St. Joseph started early, 
like 1840s. I think John Corby, somewhere around 1846, he had a pork packing plant. But this, but, and there was a, and I say quote, end quote, stockyards, but it was in more in the downtown area. That's where the meat packing was at. The stockyards, as the citizens of St. Joseph know them, that were in the South End, that gets developed in the 1870s, 1880s, and you have the Stockyards Exchange building that is built, and there's like 400 acres, and it took it took a little time to get traction, uh, capital or people, I don't know, partnerships or whatever. But John Donovan, um, and I always mess that up. It's either Donovan or Donovan. My apologies, uh, but he was instrumental in getting all that started, and he and it's like, well, that partnership kind of fell through, so okay, we'll start again, and then got it going into the stockyards until eventually the St. Joseph Stockyards was the fourth largest stockyards in the country. Mm-hmm. And you're talking places like Chicago. By this time, Kansas City is a huge force in the stockyards. Um, so yeah, of the entire country and railroads built down there, even now, if you're driving down there, you're going over railroad tracks. Some are inactive. Uh, some are still active for uh, freight cars going through there. Unfortunately, here just a few years ago, the stockyards officially closed. Now, there are still businesses down there, um, meat packing, meat industries, but the stockyards, as was known, where people could bring their cattle, bring their pigs, bring sheep to market. I remember those days. I mean, it was a phenomenal seeing people come in, and they, they, of course, would have all these cattle, sell them for cash right there, and then they would the town yeah yeah many would <laughs> and a whole, uh, there's a whole the south end had a whole um and the south end itself is a is a fascinating story it was annexed by the city in the early 20th century or late 19th century but it was a, it was still called south saint joseph but it was a separate entity and settled primarily by a lot of immigrants who came and worked in the stockyards mm-hmm. and businesses the hoof and horn uh, we're giving some plugs to a lot of businesses today, but that's okay. The Hoof and Horn is a steakhouse. It's been there open and closed throughout the years. Um, but yeah, that would have been one of the places that, you know, the the stockmen and cowboys who brought in um, brought in the cattle, it's like they got some money in their pocket. That would be a place that they could go. Yeah, you go to the exchange building, you cross the railroad tracks. Exactly. And then where are you going to go? First exactly. place you can hit. One, you get a great steak, and two, you can... Don't have to clean up that much. Nope, nope, exactly. You get a great steak, maybe some beer, and and uh, and to this day, and like I said, it's just it's just part of that that fascinating history down there. All right, this is not going to be my favorite part of this Uh-oh. conversation, but we have to have it. And I have no idea what he's going to talk about, so here we go. Jesse James. Ah, Jesse. He was killed by this uh, handsome uh, <laughs> devil. Uh, by the name of Bob Ford, which I've had to live with for all my life, being from St. Joseph, what were my parents thinking when they named me Bob? But anyway, I digress. So Jesse James was killed here in yes. St. Joseph. Yes. And tell me about that. Well, Jesse James, of course, his his story is pretty much known worldwide. Um, fought with Bloody Bill Anderson with control in the Civil War, goes Story has it he goes back to the home farm at Kearney, where his mother's still living. Is pretty much not allowed to go back to life because of the stories that came out of the atrocities that were committed as he was writing with Quantrill and Bill Anderson. So he and his brother, Frank, take to the outlaw road. And uh, he and Frank and some others 
committed what is believed to be the first daylight bank robbery in 1866 in Liberty, Missouri. Mm-hmm. The Liberty Bank still standing. You can visit as a, as a historic attraction. Killed a student. And, and, and someone was killed. And so that was kind of the start. And then from then on, but this is where you get the whole myth and fact and all this kind of thing because he jesse james ended up with a pretty good pr person john newman edwards and as to kind of like you know jesse he he kind of portrayed jesse as a a robin hood of the old west well i'm sorry he may have been robbing the rich but he was not giving it to the poor now that's not to say that he didn't have his backers he did um, he had people who supported him. Um, he was not. He he was an outlaw. He killed people. He robbed people. There, that is not in dispute. But the people he was robbing were banks and railroads, who were seen as the bad guy. Railroads were coming in and taking land from farmers to put their railroads down without giving them fair market value. Banks came in and foreclosed on land or, or gave loans at exorbitant rates that the farmers couldn't pay it back and then they foreclosed on their land. So banks and railroads were kind of seen as bad guys. So here's what Jesse's doing. Um, there, I think there's robberies that are attributed to him and Frank James that he didn't do because there's no way he could have been in two places at once. He continued he his outlaw career with his brother Frank and he joined up with the younger brothers uh, that was called the James Younger Gang, as it became to be known. They were so well known and so notorious that Missouri in the 1870s and 80s became known as the outlaw state. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just him. There was the Miller brothers and there was other outlaws, but they were the big famous ones. And dime novels were made about them. And eventually they made their way to Northfield, Minnesota. It was going to be a big haul there. Well, the citizens were not having any part of that. And that ended up in a big gunfight. Um, some of the younger brothers were killed, captured. Jesse was shot um, and eventually made his way uh, back. To, I, he, I can't remember. He, the bullet stayed in him, and I can't remember where he recovered. But he, but he, he and Frank were married, and eventually they made their way to Kearney, and, and that's where the home farm was. That's where his mother was still living. And eventually he ends up in St. Joseph with his wife and child, and he has an alias here known as Tom Howard. And he rents a house at 20, on 21st Street, not far from the Patey House Hotel, just really just down the street. They're there for a few months, and then like Christmas Eve of 1881, they move up the hill to 1318 Lafayette. And it is a pretty tall hill. Even though it's been graded about three times, it's still a pretty good hill. And at the time, it would have provided a pretty good view for him as being one of the highest points in town. And that's, that's the legend has that he selected that house because he could see anybody coming at him from the windows. So that's he and his wife. They lived there under the name Thomas Howard. He went to Sunday school with his kids. They'd walk down the hill to the church that, again, not far from Patey House. Um, that's pretty much all that's known about him. But then he has two former gang members looking to maybe put the gang back together, Bob and Charlie Ford. And they come up and they're maybe looking at a new job, doing another job. One rumor is they cased, possibly cased the, what is now known as the Missouri Valley Trust Building at 4th and uh, Felix. Never robbed it, but possibly he kind of came in and checked it out. And legend has it that uh, Bob and Charlie, well, this is not legend, this is fact. They um, had pretty much made up their mind and contacted the governor of Missouri, Thomas Crittenden, because there was a $10,000 reward out for Jesse. 
and said, okay, we will, we can be the insiders in this. We can get him for you. You just have to pay us the reward mm -hmm. and pardon. We want a full pardon. So um, that's kind of what happens. As the story is, is uh, he takes his coat off. It's uh, April 3rd, 1882. And there's a picture that needs to be straightened. And he takes his coat off and he has his guns on. Well, as a nobody, can, I don't want anybody to see me with the guns on through the window. So he takes his guns off, steps on a chair to straighten the picture, and Bob Ford pulls his gun and shoots him. In the back in the of the back, head. In the back of the head. And again, he, he ran out of the house running to get to the nearest telegraph. He said, I shot Jesse James, running to the telegraph office to report to Crittenden that the deal was done. Here we go. Well, they are arrested. Bob and Charlie are arrested and they are taken to jail here in St. Joseph and they're put on trial and they are found and you can see the trial records in the Buchanan County Courthouse records because I've seen the, the sentencing part mm -hmm. of it. And I, I don't know why this phrase fascinates me, but it does. And they are found guilty and sentenced to be hanged by the neck until they are dead. The next day they're pardoned. <laughs> okay, so the governor came through on that part of the deal. And in the meantime, Jesse obviously is dead. There's an inquest as to what happened. His wife and children were there in, in the house, but in another part of the house. And they heard it. They heard, she heard Zerelda, his wife, or Z, heard the shot and went in. And he, I don't know if, I don't, I can't remember if he was killed instantly or if he died in her arms. But she, she didn't have a ton of money. So a lot of his belongings were sold at auction. The house became a tourist attraction immediately. There's a guest register. I think it's in the possession of the St. Joseph Museum um, of people signing in. And there's a big circle or big square in ink. It says April 3rd, 1883 as the one year anniversary of the killing of Jesse James. Uh, floorboards that had his blood stains on it were uh, people were taking slivers off of it mm -hmm. uh, as souvenirs. So there was there was an inquest, the trial was held, and that's reported in the newspapers. And then uh, Bob and Charlie are released, and they go on their separate ways. And I think at one point, Bob travels in a play, I Shot Jesse James, mm -hmm. and eventually he meets his end in Greeley, Colorado. Creek. Creek, yes, thank you, Creek, Colorado, and he's shot in the back. By someone that By wants someone to say, that, I shot Bob Ford. I shot Ford. Bob Ford. Charlie Ford, uh, unfortunately, um, he's, I think he started drinking and then he committed suicide. Right. Uh, not very long after. Uh, but yeah, so Jesse James, so the house becomes this tourist attraction. It's still for rent, but you could tour it as the Jesse James home. And it's on this massive hill that they keep grading. So they would crib the house. They would literally raise it and then lower it back. I think it happened two or three times. And then the house goes out to the Belt Highway to become the draw for the Jesse James Motel. Mm -hmm. And then Gary Chilcote and the Pony Express Historical Association acquire it, bring it back to the, just right next door to the Patey House Museum, restore it, and now it's the museum of where and Jesse James is killed. And it's there. You can go visit yes, it. You I can have go to visit say, it, so. when I was a child, I go in there with my parents. And they're saying, Bob Ford, the dirty little coward who shot Mrs. Mr. Howard. Yeah. And I said to mom, I said, what did I do? Because <laughs> I had no idea there was another exactly. Bob Ford. So exactly. uh, that's my story. And, so. and, well, and like I said, the dirty little coward, that's from a, a poem that, that came out several years later. And Jesse lives on in song and story and movie and most recently was the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which was the Brad Pitt thing. 
Um, but there's, I don't know how many movies of Jesse, Bob Hope, I think, did a comedy with Jesse James. So there's any number and books about Jesse James and his family. It is a fascinating story, but of all of that, there's not a lot of Jesse's younger years mm-hmm. when he was just a boy growing up in Kearney. Most of it starts about the time he's 14, 15. Bushwhacker. But as Bushwhacker, when Frank joins and what happens to him and his family um, living in Kearney, Missouri, and then eventually he, him joining and the guerrillas at 17. So, yeah. Justifying the life he lived. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's, there, that becomes a speculation. Would he have become an outlaw if the Civil War hadn't happened? No. Probably not. Same way with Frank. Now, there is a, there's a little bit funny story on Frank. Several years ago, I was doing a program on Jesse James in Albany. It was a, at their library. And there was a gentleman there. He was probably in his 70s, 80s. And he used to live in Kearney. And he had an aunt who was a switchboard operator. Now, keep in mind, everybody, this is the party line. You know, there's mm-hmm. tons of people on there. They're talking all the time. Well, Frank lived till like 1915, 19 okay. teens, something like that. And... This gentleman, who was well advanced in years, talks that his, his aunt would always tell the story. People would be on the party line, they're talking back and forth, multiple conversations going on, and the phone would click and it would come up. And it, this gentleman, this voice would say the switchboard operator's name and said, This is Frank James. Click, 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 click. Everybody hung up so Frank could have access to the line all to himself. <laughs> that was the story he told, which I just thought was just amazing. Well, let's move on to uh, sure. you know uh, the early 1900s. And uh, well, you get you get Jesse James 1882, and then just St. Joseph just keeps growing mm-hmm. and leaps and bounds. And and like I said, there's a um, I'm trying to find some population growth. Like you said, it goes from uh, U.S. since 1870. We talked about that almost 20,000. By 1880, it's like 32,000, and then it just keeps growing. 1890, it's 52. 1900, it's officially listed as 102,000, which is, can't be regarded as accurate. <laughs> um, it's for various reasons, legends abound as to why, but it is kind of, does have an asterisk next to it. So, but you get in that 1880s and that's when most of those houses we were talking about on Hall Street or in various pockets as you go around Felix, Fair and Francis, that's when they're built in the 1880s because of all of this wealth that is coming in and you read the newspapers of that's that's to me when there's always something in the newspapers about something happening in society but that's when the society pages in St. Joseph come come in they talk about the debutantes and the balls and there's one party in here it's, it involves the Tootle family it's at the Wyeth Tootle mansion and there's this lovely children's party that they have on the third floor the host of the party was six months old and all of these movers and shakers are there with parties it's like an F. Scott Fitzgerald it is. movie it only, only set only set in the in the 1800s as you get into the 1900s, again, St. Joseph is still enjoying the wealth, but the frontier's closed. The wholesale business isn't quite what it was. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's still wholesalers around. You, you can buy things wholesale. As, as a, if you have a retail operation, you can buy supplies from a wholesale. But it was different. Um, the admin of the automobile don't really necessarily need saddles. There's still, there's still places and ranches and farmers that are still doing things on horseback even today. There's still a need for saddles, but not a massive manufacturing. So things start to change. Um, St. Joe is still enjoying fairs and different things, but technology. Uh, Rosecrans Airport 
gets mm -hmm. developed because you get airplanes. Bird wing uh, airplane manufacturing is developed here in St. Joseph, so those airplanes are made here. Charles Lindbergh shows up in, in 1920 after his uh, famous flight to Paris. So just it just changed as far as the economic. But the wealth thing. stayed. The I mean, wealth we stayed. Had generational sure. wealth. Generational wealth, and I want to say that stayed until probably. <sighs> 1950s, 60s, I think. And not to say that there wasn't still the old money, but the kind of money that would build you a four-story house with gargoyles and, and, <laughs> and opulent, you know, gilt satin paper and stained glass in every window. Not that kind of money. No. Um, St. Joe enjoyed post-World War II economic rebound just as others did, um, other uh, just kind of the rest of the United States did um, during that glorious, quote-unquote, glorious age of the post-war 1950s era. Um, it's just the money, like you said, the money was still there. It just wasn't the same. The thing about St. Joseph for me, and really one of the reasons I love history and love this mm -hmm. area, is its history, its unique history. It's the culmination of, again, transportation, communication, mm -hmm. and economic growth of the West and the development yeah. here. We are unique mm -hmm. in the history that we have, mm -hmm. and we need to sell that story. Yeah, and, and we're doing a pretty good job. Mm -hmm. Tourism is a huge um, mm. uh, business for the county, mm -hmm. not just for the city, but for the county as well. Depending on how you count the museums, there are like 13, mm -hmm. 14, the, the different museums. Some of them are under, uh, are together, Patey House, Jesse James, the St. Joseph Museums, Inc. has, you know, five museums in two locations. So depending on how you count them. But there's something for everybody. If you want architecture and learn about that opulence, come and go to Hall Street. Just go up and down Felix and Francis Street. I, I, I'm a native to St. Joseph, and I, I think I know as much. Nope, there's always something new. I'm like, hey, I've never been this way before. Let me take this corner. Oh, my God, there's houses. Correct. I'm like, how, where, where has this been my entire life? Have no idea. And especially some of these houses up in the Bluff region. Uh, now that that's, and I say developed, in, not being developed for housing, but developed for hiking and biking trails, which is a huge thing nationwide. And St. Joseph is on, right, in is on the, right in the middle of that. And honestly, the, the bicycles that we see here in the parking lot here at the Nature Center, we see people, they're parking here and they're taking their cycles or they're hiking well, there. So, we are finally taking advantage of, yes. uh, of, of geographic of, things that are in place. Indeed. Yeah, indeed. and well, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Let me read off a few things, and if you've got any uh, mm -hmm. as we wind this up. Sure. Tootle, Wyeth, McDonald, Britton, McCord, Davis, Lemon, Fairley, Enright, Logan, Smith, Bartlett, Motter, The Owens, Krug. Any good? stories uh, you want to pick oh, one of these gosh. founding families oh my gosh that, I'm uh, sure there's tons of stories there is oh let me see so there is kind of one oh there's many stories about the Owen sisters we can that's a whole other podcast in and of itself <laughs> as the Owen sisters but uh, just very briefly that there were actually four Owen sisters one was slightly more conventional she married had children but she still was kind of the of the historian type she mm -hmm. would do lectures on local history Mary Alicia Owen was the oldest. Now, <laughs> I like her because she was either born in 1850, 1851, or 1852, depending on when you asked her. <laughs> so I, I like that. That's awesome. But she uh, was a, considered a, a folklorist and a historian. So, but her father 
described her as being smart as the smart as a whip, but ugly as the devil. <laughs> now I'm thinking, what? Nice dad. Nice dad. Okay, fine. But she was the oldest of the three quote unquote Owen sisters, who were really doing things in the 1880s, 1890s, uh, that women didn't do. Uh, they were educated. Their mother saw to that. Uh, it it kind of varies on what source you read, whether they actually went to college or not. There's some sources that say that they attended Vassar but didn't graduate. They definitely had went to the schools here in St. Joseph, as, as including the Patey Women's College, and had private instruction. Uh, but Luella, when she was part of the, uh, she was a geologist, and she was known to go into caves that men were afraid to go into. And according to some reports, she was very much a lady. She had her skirts and her dresses. But when it came time to do the spelunking thing, she would have uh, basically pants, slacks on underneath, so she could hike up her skirts, get them tied up, and, get, and then she could clamber through the caves. <laughs> uh, so I just have this image of her and just, you know, not quite bloomers like Amelia Bloomer, but actual pants that she could, but she, but the minute she came out of the cave, skirts came down. And she was pretty much being a lady again. So just they they there's tons of stories about them. Juliet Owen, she was the the bird ornithologist. According to family, now they didn't have children, but they had a brother who did. So descendants from him are still in the area. And as they got older, and they died uh, in late and like one of them died in 1935, one in 1939, and the last one died in 1943. Mm -hmm. And they lived in a house that unfortunately is no longer standing on uh, North Ninth Street. But they had a habit of leaving the windows open in their house. Why not? But no screens. Birds were known to fly in and out of the house at will. Well, like, that's why. That's, that's why. That's kind of cool. Plus, according to the family, we were told that there were some days as they got older that they didn't necessarily get dressed. That they stayed in the nightgowns or robes or whatever. And I'm like... I don't see a problem. <laughs> I don't stay in your jammies all day if you can. Why not? But they did become kind of more eccentrics as time went on. But still, their contribution to geology, to ornithology, to folklore, to especially the local folklore, cannot be matched um, because they're especially uh, Luella and um, Juliet. They were very um, much in conservation of the natural resources. So. There's a whole other story there with there the Owen family. Go. And I'm sure there's plenty of other stories about uh, the, the John Lemon was kind of the guardian for business for Milton Tootle Jr. after his father died. Yes, his mother obviously took care of him, but John Lemon was made sure he went to school and kind of educated him in the business because John Lemon was also involved with the Tootle estate. And I'm sure we dig, dig enough. There's probably some pretty good stories. The Krug family and the Krug Park or Krug that goes back to World War One. I. I mean, there's just any number, but those are all names. And if you are either visit St. Joseph or are from St. Joseph, you will recognize them, maybe not as names of people, but as names of streets, of neighborhoods, parks, parks, all of that. Buildings. And that's where those names came from. Well, Sarah, can I just show up without a microphone someday and we just chat? <laughs> 
<laughs> that's entirely possible. Might need to make an appointment at some point, make sure I don't have any meetings or anything like that. But I, I'm happy to participate. And if you got well, another topic you want to do this again in the future, I'd love to. I thank you so much. I needed to do this on St. Joseph, my hometown. Yes, I am a homeboy. <laughs> and St. Joseph, the catchphrase is St. Joseph, a town worthwhile. Yes. And you have made that worthwhile oh, well, with this you. conversation. But this is Bob Ford with History, Mystery, and Lore, along with my friend, Sarah Elder. We are keeping history alive, so you will pass it on. Thank you very much. (laughs) Speaking of passing history on, pass us on. If you enjoy these episodes, rate us, and even better, gift us to a family member or friend that loves history. To learn more, go to bobfordshistory.com for details. If you would like a history gift that keeps coming all year long, we have dozens more interviews already in the can with more to come. That's B-O-B-F-O-R-D-S history.com. I appreciate your support so we can continue to make history. Thank you.